This is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics help us explore our humanity. This is my 10th year covering the Tribeca Festival, I'm proud to say. And today I have two conversations with Jennifer Reeder on two of her films that mix horror and coming-of-age themes in fascinating and unconventional ways. First up is Knives and Skin, and this is a story of young women who lose one of their own to murder. Reader mixes metaphor and characterization effectively that led to praise at the Berlin Festival and also being selected at the Tribeca Festival for the first time for Knives and Skin in 2019. Hi, welcome to Sci-Fi Talk, and today I have Jennifer Reeder, and as we begin officially our Tribeca coverage for 2019, and her film is called Knives and Skin, and you wrote and directed this. Welcome, Jennifer, and um, how did this idea come to you? The feature film Knives and Skin is directly related to a couple of recent shorts I made that are... Uh, about teen girls, you know, navigating their everyday life um, among adults who are making sort of one big mistake after another. Um, so in the mm-hmm. short, in the shorts, I realized that this formula works. The shorts have been has been really popular. They've gone to Sundance. They've gone to Berlin, and so I knew there was a bigger story there. And I also wanted to incorporate more elements of um, magical realism. I wanted to kind of push um, and flirt with uh, elements of horror and thriller and musical musicals even. And yeah, and here we are. Mm-hmm. Knives and Skin is getting ready to have its U.S. premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. Sci-Fi Talk returns in a moment. Yeah, so you you don't mind poking at reality a little bit? No, you know, not at all. Not at all. I mean, there, there, <laughs> there, this 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 film itself has both. You know, there's a, there, there are elements of uh, sort of Me Too in the in the film. I mean, it's based in a with a with a with a kind of justice agenda, a kind of feminist agenda. But the film itself, the way that I created the film, I wanted it to really ho- sort of hover just above reality and feel like from the, yeah. from the first frame of the film, you're really entering a very particular world. You know, the, the, the performances, the performances in the character ground the film, but it really does. It really is mm-hmm. meant to, to really hover above, uh, hover above, uh, you know, what we would consider, you know, a kind of, uh, you know, real film space. Since you wrote this and you had an idea what the characters are like, and now you cast actors and they're, you're on set and filming, was there room to incorporate kind of their experience and talent in shaping the character at all? You know, that's a good question. And I do think that probably once I cast everyone and I knew, you know, really concretely what they would look like and what they would sound like, and I had started to determine what the chemistry would be like among those particular actors portraying the characters that I had written, I do think that there was some revisions made sort of heading into completing the the shooting script, but I actually didn't get a chance to sit down with all of the actors and sort of dive into their personal biographies to incorporate some of their own life and their own experience into the characters. I have done that before, and I love that experience. But with this one, you know, I, I, I certainly made some revisions just knowing what those character, what those actors looked like and, and sounded like and what that chemistry would be like. But, you know, once we started shooting, I mean, I really am not someone who allows for much improv or actually no improv. 
you know, in my performance. <laughs> I'm very, I'm very particular about the dialogue that I write, um, and I'm very particular about you know how a conversation plays out in a scene. Um, and even though I love working with improv um, actors, I don't allow for improv on my set. You must stick to the script. Mm. Now, since you wrote the screenplay, when you're writing it, do you kind of wear your director's hat a little bit so that everything is cohesive and there's not extra scenes that really don't fit what you're doing? Absolutely. I mean, I went into I went into production for Knives and Skin with a 103 page script, um, which is a which is a long script. I knew it would be a long film. I mean, it's an ensemble cast. There were a lot of narrative arcs and narrative threads to to address through the whole film mm-hmm. and through the whole script. Now, having said that, you know, when I when I you know hit the final print, you know, this is a locked script. This is the, the scripture that we're shooting. I was convinced that we would use every single scene that every single you know scene and line of dialogue was precious and that I had vetted the whole thing very particularly but of course the assembly edit was something like two hours and 40 minutes that was you know the assembly of every scene that we shot and you know then I had to get really really tough with myself and we cut out nearly an hour so there were a lot of scenes that you know once we once I looked at it in the, you know, on the timeline and thought of the entire story, there were scenes that really were either redundant or extraneous or re- really even like, um, you know, expository in a way that uh, it, it was easy to, to, to start kind of chopping it away. But that was a surprise to me because I really went into shooting the script thinking that it was, you know, solidly perfect and nothing else could be added or taken away a film comes together in the editing room and you know the the balancing act is determining what you can live without and what you absolutely need so uh that's a lot that's a lot of time in the editing room you know how it all plays out and how it kind of cohesively makes a movie kind of thing you know it's it's yeah not easy no, it's not easy. And, you know, I, I mean, I have the advantage of working with, I've worked with the same editor for the past 14 years, and he really knows my material. He oftentimes has a sense of what of what I will be able to let go of. And so oftentimes he's the one who says, you know, I think we can let that scene go. He knows that I will usually push back immediately. I need to think about it, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for a couple of days. But he does have a good sense of, <laughs> of um you know, of the of the general, you know, pacing and rhythm of, of the film, what will work and what will not work. But he also has a sense of what of what I want out of the out of the final film, which I think is really an important relationship that he and I have. And I sent it to I mean, I didn't do a full test screening with an audience, but I sent it to, you know, a small group of of friends who I trust who, who know my work um, and who I thought could give really mm-hmm. valuable feedback. And I was really able to listen to them when they said, you know, this scene, I don't understand why it's there, or this scene seems to sort of repeat with this other, what this other scene did. And mm-hmm. so, and I was, that, that actually made the, the editing process, um, you know, helpful because at the end of the day, I didn't want to make, you know, a film that, that was obviously, you know, boring or redundant. Um, right. I, I wanted to make a film that people were, you know, kind of stayed with. I mean, it's a long film. It's a hundred and you know, it's 111 minutes, and I wanted people to really stay with stay with it. The, you know, the whole time and be not not 
for instance, at the edge of their seat, but be deeply invested in, in those characters and where the story was going. And to get to get there, I had to make some tough, tough cuts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, to mention your editor is Michael Linick, so kind of yeah. give him props for his work. Um, yes, absolutely. Now, cinematography, you had Christopher Rahano and kind of tell us about, any, did you discuss any kind of color palette for the film or a look that you were going for? Absolutely. And Chris, I've also worked with over many, many films also. So we, so Chris and I also have a very close um, relationship. And on set, we ha- there's a lot of um, a kind of shorthand language that, that we use. So I really, you know, loved working with him on this project. Um, and absolutely, um, between Chris and I and the head uh, gaffer, uh, Louis Lukasik, we, we, we used references anything from, um, you know, the, the original Suspiria to um, oh, Paris, nice. Texas. Uh, yeah, Paris, Texas. I mean, the, a lot of the work of, of Robbie Mueller. Hmm. Um, we looked at um, photographers like Gregory Crutzen and um, Todd Hedo. And we actually looked at painting references like the figurative work of, of Jenny Seville. Um, so we absolutely wanted the film to be drenched in this kind of magenta and violet um, cyan. I mean, those were those were reoccurring colors in the film that really, I think, also helped the film sort of hover in this, you know, hover in this in this very particular kind of um, film space. So we really wanted to deal with kind of t- taking some risks with the with the color and and transforming very ordinary spaces like a kitchen um, or a living room or a bedroom into something that was a, a, a space that really vibrated with, with those colors. And I feel like with the, you know, with all, with all of those colors, and especially with the magenta and the violet, you know, we, I also wanted to really wrap the film in what feels like a kind of feminine um, sensibility. All right, why don't we take a short break? I am talking to Knives and Skin writer and director Jennifer Reeder. And for you out there, have you seen Carolyn Harper? We'll be right back. <laughs> All right, back on Sci-Fi Talk with Jennifer Reeder, writer and director for Knives and Skin. And uh, certainly congratulations are in order for being selected to the Tribeca Film Festival. Now, I've, I've never asked this, and I've been covering the festival since 2013, but how do you get notified that your film has been selected? I got an email. I got an email from the programming director, um, Kara. It was not, it wasn't, it wasn't even a, a sort of a formal, you know, form letter, you know, it was something that was sort of in the heading, like congratulations or welcome to Tribeca or something very, very personal, very personal, oh, nice. um, which actually felt like yeah. super special. I mean, it, it, it really meant that she, um, you know, like she loves the and will champion the film and that she was really supportive of me. It's actually, I mean, you know, it's nice, obviously, to get, um, you know, often to get personal rejections. I mean, I, I do get, I do get mm-hmm. rejections often yeah. and it's really nice to get personal ones, but it's even nicer to get obviously an acceptance or an invitation, but it's, it's, and it's lovely to get one that's all, that also feels really personal. I mean, certainly followed up by the kind of formal form letter, but it's great to get a personal invitation. What's it like for you personally to, uh, to be selected and to bring the movie here to New York? I've never screened a film at Tribeca, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's such a, a coveted, <laughs> you know, it's such a coveted festival. Um, and obviously, oh, yeah. the U.S. premiere in New York 
feels extremely special. I mean, the film world premiered at the Berlin mm-hmm. Film Festival, which I have a great relationship with, and also to sort of bring this film, to introduce this film to the world through a city like Berlin was extraordinary and very special. And so then to follow that up with, yeah. you know, a, a U.S. premiere in New York just feels extremely special as well. And I'm not taking it for granted at, at all. Um, and the film is going to mm-hmm. be in the in the midnight section. So it's also a genre section. That's right. Um, and I think mm-hmm. there's only five or six films in that section. I'm the only female director, which also feels pretty special. I mean, even though this year um, the Tribeca Film Festival has gender parity, it's, you know, it's a 50-50 um, spread between the directors in terms of um, women and men. Um, and I don't mind being the only, you know, woman in the midnight section. I feel like I can hold it down for, you know, women in, in genre. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not only, yes. you know, bringing this, bringing this film to the U.S., you know, by way of Tribeca and in a, in a city like New York, but, but for it to be in the midnight section and the genre section also feels, um, you know, really, really special to me and also something that I'm not taking for granted. That's cool. Uh, mm-hmm. As far as your cast, was there anybody during filming that surprised you? The last person that we cast for the for the, the very last person that we cast was um, Marika Engelhard, who plays Carolyn Harper's mother, Lisa, who is just you know just from the from the sort of first first scene of the film through the end is really um, un- unraveling. It's a tough role. It's a very nuanced role. It's a challenging role. It's a provocative role. I mean, it's a role where she. Uh, you know, after the first scene, we really don't see her stable for the entire, you know, rest of the film. And, Mm. you know, Marika really brought all of that fragility and trauma and worry, you know, to that, to that character. And I feel like, you know, part of the strength of this film is really, you know, believing, believing that people are just kind of barely, barely hanging on, you know, and really believing that they are, that they are, coping to their very limits. And so her performance, you know, I think is a really extraordinary. And I mean, I, you know, she auditioned for the part and, and, you know, she's an, she's a fantastic um, actress on stage and on, on film, but I really was astonished um, by how much real emotion and fragility she, you know, she brought to that, um, to that role. And obviously I was also, you know, super impressed with all of our young people. I mean, those are also long days and those are also really particular sure. um, parts with some with some intimacy, some provocation. And, you know, I just was um, I mean, I've worked with a lot of young people. I love working with, you know, with young actors. And, you know, this this film was no exception. I mean, it was, you know, I loved working with those young people. They were totally poised, totally professional. And I have no doubt that there's, you know, their futures are all extremely bright, whether they want to stay on stage or continue in film and television. Yeah, absolutely. No, it sounds. Uh, it 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 sounds. It, I'm definitely going to look out for her performance. Yeah, uh, for sure. You know, especially in genre and independent film. Do you think the climate is getting better for women writer and writers and directors? I absolutely do. I think that there are a lot of studios and producers, um, both in film, film and television, who realize that their rosters are missing women, women writers women um, directors, even other women behind the camera, cinematographers, um, gaffers, you know, the G&E people, etc. Um, and so I think that they're doing that little extra work to 
find the the female writers and directors because we're out here and we're making work. We're making great work. We're making work that's being, you know, vetted and lauded and we're winning awards and all of this. And so I do think that it's better. And especially for, yes, especially for genre. I mean, in the past, you know, several years, films like um, The Babadook or films like um, Good Night, Mommy, yes. films like... A girl walks home alone at night, and her follow-up, The Bad Batch. I mean, there there are women who are really um, carving a very significant, super exciting mm-hmm. path for genre and a way and a new way to tell genre. Because I really do think that if you're, you know, if you're watching, um, you know, I mean, even something like Lynn Ramsey's new film, um, You Were Never Really Here, which isn't quite a thriller or a horror, but it definitely has like sort of traumatic, you know, elements and violent um, elements. And even though, you know, that film is centers on the male lead, Joaquin Phoenix, um, where we really stay with him in every single scene, I would still argue that that film has a real, you can tell that there was a, a woman behind the camera, you know, that that was directed by a woman or, or I can. I mean, it's the, the way that that story is told and, and, and how her camera looks at her subjects. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a really great time for women working in in horror and thriller, working in fantasy, working in sci-fi. You know, I mean, I want to see what you know people like Patty Jenkins has to follow up with. You know, um, yes. Wonder Woman. I love that. You know, and the and the the, the yes. thing is that if we look at if we look at box office returns, audiences absolutely go to films with female leads, for instance, and female leads at the box office mm-hmm. have, have done well, have done better than, than films with male leads. I mean, that's a, those are real stats. And so, but a lot of those sure. films are still being, um, you know, there's still more films being made with male leads. And oftentimes the films with female leads are still written and directed by men or at least directed by men. And so, you know, I think it's a really good time for these female led female driven films and the box office says that people are totally gobbling up that content i mean it's to me it's very simple i just want to be entertained and i I, you know it's just if the film is entertaining it really shouldn't matter who's directing it because it just entertainment you know you just want to be entertained i agree i agree i agree agree. you know we people audiences want you know audiences want good films and women are making good films I mean, heck, heck, men have been making boring films for years. So, you know, they, you know, so it's not like they're immune, you know, to getting better. So, uh, you know, it's, it's no big deal. Now, I know that you have a, uh, a solid background making shorts, and this is really the first long form film that you've done. And what's it like to kind of, you know, cross over into another threshold here? I mean, I've been ready for it. You know, I feel like I've been kind of that, like, yeah. you know, filmmaker sitting on the bench, like, pass me the ball, coach. I'm ready. <laughs> I mean, I've stayed, I've stayed busy making short films because I love making films. It's not a myth that, you know, long films, feature-length films take a long time to make. They're very expensive. Sure. It's really a kind of a crapshoot. I mean, you know, there's so many films that get made and how many of them actually get to have a real life, whether it's in a film festival, the film festival world, or, you know, the theatrical release world. I mean, it's really a very small number of films that kind of make it out of the gate once they're finished. And still, you've spent all this time and money. So I have made a lot of short films because I really do have, I have a lot of ideas. And most of those ideas 
don't have to be a feature length film, you know, I mean, sometimes it's a 10 minute short, sometimes it's a 30 minute short, and I've made long shorts. And so making this film was just like, a little longer than some of the, you know, than some of the shorts that I made. So logistically, it was just more days of shooting, more people, a longer script, etc. And the shorts, my shorts have done really well outside of the US, which has been fantastic. Um, in terms of like, the shorts have been able to finance themselves, you know, with um, grants mm-hmm. from overseas or prize money from different film festivals. But in the States, it's still sort of the, the short is still seen as a rule as a calling card for the feature. So you know, a career as a, as a short filmmaker or a filmmaker who makes short films isn't actually sustainable. So you really do have to eventually make a, make a feature. And I just feel, you know, super fortunate that, um, you know, that so, that so far it's, it's, um, you know, it's being, you know, just, and after Tribeca, it's going to have a, you know, it's going to other festivals. And the, the, the hope obviously is that it sells out of Tribeca and it has like a really great, you know, theatrical release where lots of people can see it. And I just get to make, I get to make more films. I do think that I will go back to making, to making short films because like I said, I like staying busy. I like making films. I love trying out little smaller ideas or smaller moments, scenes, characters, through the short mm-hmm. form, um, but but you know I'm I'm ready to make more feature length films. It sounds like short films are also kind of like your laboratory. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's what you know. Like I said yeah. at, the, at the beginning of this conversation, you know that Knives and Skin as a feature length script was really born out of a couple of shorts that I had made, where I really was trying out some scenes, trying out some moments, trying out you know dialogue between very particular kinds of characters. And that those films did really well, that audiences were really drawn into them, that they screened all over the world at really fantastic film festivals, you know, that they won awards that, you know, qualified them for, you know, Oscar nomination. You know, and what that what that said to me back was, you know, this is content that people are interested in. And so I really brought those themes into Knives and Skin. That's great. And lastly, talk about New City's Chicago Film Project. Right. So, so, so New City Chicago Film Project was born out of New City, um, a magazine, um, which has huh. uh, been, been running for about 30 years. So it's run by Brian and Jan Hegelke. Um, and it's a cultural magazine um, that covers, you know, food, art, literature, music in Chicago. It's a free magazine um, that used to come nice. out weekly. Um, and uh, well, I think it still does not come out, come out um, at weekly, both online and in print. So, in 2015-ish, Brian and Jan, who have run New City, like I said, for 30 years, wanted to make a film, sort of as, their, as, the, as the magazine was reaching its, its um, 30th anniversary. They found a script uh, here in Chicago that was written by a woman who used to live here in Chicago now. She lives in L.A. called Fazia Mirza. And the, the script was, um, was a, like a lesbian rom-com about a Muslim woman who falls in love with a Mexican woman one hot summer in Chicago. <laughs> So, Fazia wrote yeah, awesome. in it. It's a great story. It's a really fun, it's a really super fun um, film. It's called Signature Move. It's on Amazon now. Um, but they, lo- they were looking for a director. Nice. They wanted a Chicago-based female director who had experience working in narrative film. So, I actually was hired to direct Signature Move. Um, we shot it in the summer of, t- of 2016. So, even though... You know, so I have made another feature film before. I just didn't write Signature Move. I, I was, I directed it. Right. Um, so that, we shot that in the summer of 2016. That film premiered at the 2017 South by Southwest Film Festival in Austin, nice. Texas. 
Like I said, it's on oh, yeah. on the Amazon now. And so, you know, Brian and Jan just said, you know, what are you what are you up to next? And I said, well, you know, I've got this script I've been working on called, you know, Knives and Skin. And they and I, you know, they said, and I had some producers, you know, in various very other other producers in various stages kind of come on and come off the project, which is very common. Um, but Brian and Jan came on sure. along at a good time when I was really ready to sort of say like, okay, let's let's put a timeline to this. Let's get a budget. Let's get a timeline. Let's do it. And so they said, yeah, let's make another film together. And here we are. That's fantastic. That's yeah. a great story. Talk about signature move covering diverses, uh, diversity on all yeah. bases. There you go. That's pretty yeah, cool. Absolutely. It's, absolutely. And it's, and it's a yeah. film that um, I feel super proud of. I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's a film that the, the content is, is different than the content that I'm, that I have made, but it's still a, a female, a female driven cast. Um, and it, and it's, and it came along, you know, it's a very timely film. The podcast is not exactly over but here is our conversation on the red carpet of the Tribeca Film Festival. You're here now, and you're going to see it with an audience yeah. here. What's that feel like for you? Oh, gosh. I mean, on the one hand, the like, you know, a huge portion of the cast and crew are here, who yeah. I think are, no matter what, even if it was terrible at the end of the day, which it's not, they would be so excited to see it. So at the very least, being able to see it with the cast and crew is like, I'm my heart is fluttering. You know, I'm excited to share it with them. But I know that, like, we have a sold-out show. We have a sold-out, you know, audience nice. night. So I also know that just people who are Tribeca fans or, like, regular New Yorkers who love films are here. And I'm really happy to share it with them. Oh, great. Great yeah. to meet you. Yeah, you too. Luck to you, you too. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to my interview with Jennifer Reeder, writer and director of the film Knives and Skin. That's in the Tribeca Film Festival. Until next time, this is Tony Tolato. See you next time. And I do mean this is the actual end. Take care. Look for Knives and Skin now playing on Apple TV, DirecTV, and Amazon for rent or buy. DirecTV is by subscription. This is Tony Tolado.